1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Um, Peter, now if you remember at the very beginning uh, of this sermon series, and, and if you've read the book, Peter is ministering, he's writing to people who are suffering. They're suffering at the hands of governments, at the hands of unbelievers who are they're facing political, social pressure. And for most of the letter, he has been describing the type of suffering, describing what their response should be. And now he switches to the source of their suffering. You see what doesn't matter if the immediate source of your suffering is a government, is an employer, is a family member, a neighbor, ultimately the source of your suffering is spiritual. There is a spiritual battle going on. There, it, we're in the middle of spiritual warfare. We are in a war with the devil and his demonic army. And when we start talking about Satan, there are two opposite and foolish reactions that we can have concerning this matter of spiritual warfare. We can take Satan too seriously, as if he possessed omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence. But he's an angel. He's, he's like all the other creatures. He can only be in one place at a time. He has areas of ignorance, and he only has finite power. Certainly, Michael the archangel is presented even as his peer in Revelation chapter 12, verse number 7. But on the other hand, we can fall, we can fail to take him seriously enough and just kind of, um, reduce him to a cartoon villain, a guy in a little red suit and a pitchfork and a long tail. And both of those extremes are wrong. Now, what I see and you see here is Peter is giving a balance on how we view this matter of spiritual warfare. He's, he's shown us how to be balanced. The first 90% of his letter focuses on suffering, on the attitude we should have. And he, he focuses on, he keeps encouraging us with the great heavenly rewards, the, the strength that is behind us in the Lord Jesus Christ, and all these things. But we cannot deny that most of what we face in the battle uh, uh that we're facing is a spiritual dimension. And the way, listen to this, the way that we prepare for spiritual warfare is not to focus on the enemy himself, but rather focus on the tools and use the tools that we've been provided to fight. And that's what Peter does. 90% of the, the, the book, he's focusing on the tools and the promises and all this sort of thing. And then he slips in this little snippet about the devil and it, it's so instructive what he did, he does here. And this provides a, a perfect opportunity for, for us to explore a little what the Bible talks about with the devil in spiritual warfare. So let's read verse number eight again. Be sober minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What we see here are several things about spiritual warfare, the first thing that we need to see is that we need to be ready. By the way, today I'm going to mainly teach. I'm not going to do a whole lot of preaching. It's going to be mainly instructing. I think it'll be good, really good. For um, But um, Christians are always to be ready for spiritual warfare. And there's there's two dimensions to this 
to this readiness. The first one is spirit, be sober-minded. Do you know that this is the third time that Peter's enjoined his, uh, his recipients to be sober-minded? The first two times he calls for sober-mindedness in relation to the coming of Christ. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The end of all things is at hand, 1 Peter 4, 7. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The word here means the opposite of a state of mind caused by drunkenness. We understand that, right? You're either drunk or you're sober, right? The Bible says that we, we should avoid spiritual intoxication. It's, we should have a clear mind, a self-controlled mental state that avoids this, this intoxication by worldly values. And I, I talked about this already. I'm not going to go through this again. Avoid this intoxication with the world and its values and, and what it has to offer. Um, the second way to be prepared for spiritual warfare is to be watchful. It, it means to be alert. Watchfulness here is, is kind of a military term. It's, it's to have your attention focused. Now, when we think about our military, they're watchful for the enemy, right? And, and there's many different ways that enemies can attack. And so we have satellites up in the sky looking for missile threats. We have radar stations on land looking for airborne threats. We have submarines looking for, um, underwater attacks and, 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 uh, attack by ships. We have spies looking for secret attacks. And what can we learn from our own military in this military term is, that Satan doesn't attack us all the same way. He has multiple fronts by which he will attack believers. And so we need to be watchful. We need to be sober-minded. And so that is part of being ready. Did you know all through the New Testament, uh, Christians are called to be watchful? It's very... um instructive to look at how it teaches us to be watchful. We're, we're, we're to, to be watchful, for example. The first way is we're to be watchful for the Lord's term. Jesus spoke of it often. In, in Matthew twenty four forty two. He says, Therefore, stay awake. There's that same word. Um, be watchful. Stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. Um, the, the second main way the word to be watchful is in prayer, so that we do not succumb to temptation. He says, Watch and pray. By the way, Jesus said that a lot. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Why? Because we do not, that we may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Um, therefore, be alert. There's that word. Be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. And here, Paul is telling the church to be alert because one of the ways that Satan attacks the church is through false teachers. Remember, he says wolves will come in. He says that to those elders of Ephesus. And so watchfulness, we need to be watching and and being very careful. The opposite of this sober-mindedness, this kind of spiritual drowsiness, is one... Now listen, this is so important. If you see and respond to events and things in your life no differently than unbelievers and you don't view God's perspective, then you're not being watchful and you're not being sober-minded. See how that works? It, it's being the same as the world when you, when you work through these. If the first command, be sober, literally 
refers to avoiding the effects of intoxication. And the second, be watchful, to casting off sleepiness and remaining wide awake, then such actions must characterize believers as they wait for for the return of Christ. And that's what Peter's talking about right before this. He's talking about Jesus coming back, the return of Christ. And so we must recognize that there are dangers that await us and don't be caught unawares. The devil's tactic is to deceive. That's what his name means here. He's a deceiver. He deceives his victims. Rather than merely challenge them openly or intimidate them, he deceives them. We, we saw this today in, in a tremendous Sunday school lesson in Genesis. That's a little tongue in cheek. Um, how did Satan get Eve to fall? He questioned God's word. He deceived her in a way. He mixed truth and error together. And so we gotta be watchful, be alert. Secondly, uh, we need to know the enemy's character. And we see several things. He, first of all, he's an adversary. You know what Peter said? Your adversary. Now, an adversary is somebody who constantly opposes you. That's, that's the flavor of that word adversary. He's constantly opposing you. He, he is never your friend. He's never on your side. He's never happy for you. He is only against you. Only. Secondly, he's a slanderer. The, the word devil can also mean slanderer. He, he slanders. Not only is he always against you, he's always looking for a way to slander you. I will talk about this in a minute. Job and in the book of Job, when the devil is talking to God, what is he trying to do? God said, if you consider my servant Job and Satan slanders him. Well, yeah, you made him the richest guy in the world. Why wouldn't he love you? That's that's what he's doing with all believers. He's a slander, trying to slander God and trying to slander you to God. He's also... He has a goal. He's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He wants to destroy you. Make no bones about it. Not only is he your adversary, he is seeking to destroy you, destroy this church, destroy the church universal, and to destroy the name of Christ. And even when Christ is on earth, try to actually destroy him as well. He's seeking someone to devour. He is not your friend. He is a mortal enemy. The image of the devil. Look at the image here. When you look at chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 5, how are believers pictured? Sheep. And how is he pictured? A lion. Now, if a sheep goes against a lion in a fight, is it even going to be a fair contest? I mean, a sheep is literally just a little snack for a lion. No, no contest whatsoever. The imagery that Peter's using in chapter number five is to remind you, you stand no chance against Satan. You completely do not stand a chance except through Jesus Christ. The one of the fiercest predators going against the most defenseless of animals. In one sense, it's not really a very encouraging picture, is it? But I want you to understand one more thing about the context, and then we're going to expand this out just a little bit. The context here is 
sociopolitical. Because he's talking about suffering, the whole book is about suffering brought on by governments, by the world, by neighbors, by families, religious leaders of the Jews and that sort of thing. That kind of suffering. And, and that's what he's bringing in. It's the, the political and social atmosphere of the Roman world. It's government persecution and, and all. But here's the thing, and this is where we're going to go with this. It never works. Now, if you're in Sunday school today, I taught you that the um, promise of God always starts out small and it looks like it's going to fail. Enter an article that I clipped. I, I have, in case you, you're wondering, you see these uh, headlines that I'll put up here. Um, I, my Bible software, if I find an article on the internet, I just transport it into my Bible software and keep it, and I tag it by, by references. So I've got all kinds of articles, I say, by reference in the Bible. And this one came up. The Iranian church is the fastest growing church in the world. Fascinating story. Now, this is how this works. Here's the opening little couple sentences. You ready? Persecution threatened to wipe out Iran's tiny church. Instead, the the Iran church has become the fastest growing in the world and is influencing the region for Christ. Amazing, isn't it? Listen to this little statistic. In 1979, to give you some history for some of you younger ones that may not know, in 1979, the Iranian Revolution brought in Islamic law and Islamic rule to Iran, and with it, persecution of the church. From another paragraph in the article, it says this, More Iranians have become Christians in the last 20 years than in the previous 13 centuries put together since Islam came to Iran. In 1979, there were an estimated 500 Christians from a Muslim background in Iran. Today, there are hundreds of thousands, some say a million Christians in Muslim Iran. Amazing, isn't it? Same thing happened in China. The, the, the Chinese church was very small in the cultural revolution. I think that was 1963, if I remember my history right. Um, 60, 66? All right, that was pretty close. That was before my time. I was born in 68. That's my excuse, right? Now, they estimate that the Chinese church is over 100 million people. More Christians in China than are in the United States. It never works. Why is that? Why is that? Because of the next command of Peter. We are to resist him. We are to resist the devil. That resistance comes in the power of Jesus Christ. What does that look like? Now remember, remember these governments, these families, these employers, all this social pressure is literally telling them, shut up about your Christianity. You talk about Christ, we're going to make you miserable. That's the kind of pressure they're under. And what happens? You resist that pressure by telling everybody you know about your Savior. And in that, Christ will sustain you. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. It may not end well with you, physically speaking. You may die for it. But his witness spreads through 
the what's the uh, was Augustine say the blood of the saints is the seed of the church I think is the way it goes. But you resist you resist the devil. And look at what verse number nine says. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Isn't that a weird logic? It's not really, because your kids do it all the time. Everybody's doing it, Dad. Look, I need an iPhone 10 because everybody in class has got an iPhone 10 except me. Or whatever. That's kind of it's kind of what Peter's saying here, but actually what he's saying is you're not alone. God is with you, and there are many other people going through the same thing. So the 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 Iranian government and don't don't miss this, satanically empowered, is the lion trying to devour the Iranian church, and, but the sheep haven't been silenced, but rather they've been emboldened to spread the gospel. Isn't that awesome? Now, that's what resisting looks like. What I want to do now is I want to follow spiritual warfare through the Bible, if you don't mind. So let's go to Daniel chapter number 10. I want to show you something fascinating. Now, I'm going to tell you something. This is actually something for you to ponder. I'm going to give you a little edgecombology. This is not biblical theology. This is my speculation about something, and maybe we can have coffee sometime and chat about this, okay? I read this in my devotions the other day. I was sharing that with Carol Williams. We were talking about this. This is stunning to me. Daniel sees a vision from God. And he begins fasting and praying to, in order to understand the interpretation of this, this vision that he has. And finally, in Daniel 10, 12, an angel comes to him. And look at what he says. He said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard and I have come because of your words. Now look at the explanation. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. So Michael, the archangel, is being called a prince here, right? So the other guy, the other prince, is also a a demon, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings, plural, of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. According to this, what are the demonic influences in Persia doing? They are trying to interrupt the understanding of biblical revelation for the saints. You know what they're doing? Okay, that's what they're doing. Now, Jesus even mentioned this in his parable of the soils. I think it's in Mark chapter 4. He said, remember, he's explaining it. And he said, the seed that is sowed by the wayside is the gospel. When it's sowed, who snatches it? The birds do, but he said the birds were who? You remember? Satan. Look it up. Read chapter 4. When he explains it, Satan snatches the Word of God so that they don't understand or comprehend it. Wouldn't you say this is what's trying to happen here? God reveals something to Daniel, and he's praying for the interpretation, and Satan's trying to snatch it away, and yet it gets. Now look what happens. 
The angel helps Daniel to understand the vision. And then verse number 20. Then he said, do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. Now, in case you're not familiar with the Bible history, Daniel at this point is is serving the Persian Empire. Okay? I return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come in. Now, he's talking about the demonic realm, and what do we know about history? The Persian Empire's influence waned, and roughly 150 years later, who swept in? Greece under Alexander the Great. He is definitely saying that there is a demonic spiritual dimension to the nations. Wouldn't you say? Now my speculation, I was talking to Carol about this. I don't know. This is Edgecombeology. Is it possible that the culture and political atmosphere of each nation, which is unique, is being influenced by demonic powers? even though they're unique. And so the culture of a nation that causes it to be that way is in part a spiritual influence on that nation. And I'm just pulling this from what I'm reading here in Daniel chapter number 10. Now, let me make a little contemporary application. If Satan is trying to keep the Word from getting out, how hard is it to get the Bible in schools right now? How hard is it to get... Biblical truth in the public square, in the government. Take your pick, even in the workplace. Now let me ask you something. Where is the origin of this? It's from Satan and the demons. That's what the Bible is definitely telling us, you see. So it may sound um, bold to say this, it's satanic. The push to keep the Bible out of the public square and keep Bible truth suppressed and go against Scripture is a satanic push. But most of you are not being persecuted this way, so I'm going to take it and make this a little bit more of a topical message and get right down where you live. How does Satan attack you most of the time? He usually doesn't do it through the government. Okay? He may try, but how does Satan seek to devour sheep? Well, according to 1 John 2, 15-17, he uses three gates. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride of life. Basically, if you want to boil this down, you could say lusting for what you see, lusting because of what you feel, in plain and simple pride. Those are the three primary gates through which Satan tries to devour us and get us to sin. Now, what we do know is desire starts in the heart, doesn't it? It starts in the heart. So he uses those heart desires. Most of the time, Satan doesn't need very much help. That's what I'm getting at because it starts internally. That's, that is Satan's approach. Now let's look at the Scripture for our guide. Turn to Genesis chapter number 3. We'll see how this plays out. It's, it's right in Genesis 3. 
Satan, embodied in a serpent, came to tempt Eve. His first temptation came through her eyes, didn't it? He pointed to the fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then he appealed to pride. Look at verse number 5. For God knows that when you eat at it, your eyes will be open and you will be what? Like God. He's appealing to her pride. Pride of life. And notice that when the temptation drew out, these three lustful temptations um, in Eve's heart, verse number 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, it was a delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise, pride of life. She took of the fruit and ate it, and she gave some also to her husband with her, and he ate. Has Satan changed any of the way that he works in our lives? He hasn't, has he? It's still the same. No mention. Well, let me, let me just, um, let's move on to James 1. I'm running out of time. James chapter 1. Turn to James chapter 1. I want to show you this. Because now we're learning, remember, we're learning about the spiritual dimension of the warfare going on. We know from Peter and what he says that we're not to focus on Satan and we're not to totally ignore Satan. We're to recognize his existence and use the tools that God gave us. But I want to show you something. James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. Let no one say when he is tempted... I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. Now pause right there. Who tempts people? Satan. But look how Satan does it. But each one, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And when desire when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, there's no mention of Satan here, but it's obvious that he's behind it. So let's think about this for just a minute. How many here have had Satan come and tempt you to eat a piece of fruit recently? Okay. How many here have had Satan come to you and say, you know what, if you'll just do this, you'll become like God? He hasn't. Because he brings the temptations your way. You know, if you'll only do this, look at how much easier your life will be. I know the Bible says it's wrong, right? Um, you take you take whatever temptation you want. I don't even have to explain that to you. You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? That's how Satan works. And you'll notice in the Bible that the vast Majority of the times the Bible talks about this, no mention of Satan is there, right? Well, let's, let's pick out a different kind of temptation. Turn to Job. Turn to Job. Because that, that's the temptation to sin. Job see, shows us that Satan can use another completely dimension here. And this is going to bring out another truth about this whole spiritual warfare thing that I want to point out. What about Job? What's interesting about Job, the re, one of the reasons I bring it up, is that it so closely parallels our text today. Now, how does it start out? We start out learning all about Job. Basically, Job was one of the rich guys. He's one of the one percenters. 
And it goes on talking about everything that he had. His flocks, by the way, numbered in the thousands. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, yeah, um, I know farms with more, more than that. Except that you gotta remember the average person's flock was less than 20. So, so for the person who read Joe back in, in the Old Testament times, New Testament times, this guy was rich beyond your imagination. And the book starts talking about the blessings of God. Then there's this conversation in heaven. And notice verse number seven. This is in heaven. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered, going to and fro on the earth from walking up and down on it. Does that not sound like the devil is a roaring lion prowling around looking for someone to devour? Was that what he was doing? Yeah. Job chapter number 2, same thing. Um, Job 2, 2. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord, going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Satan, even way back, and he lived probably about the time of Abraham, 4,000 years ago, Satan, even way back then, was looking to devour people. This time, though, who put him up to it? Yeah, you don't like to say it, do you? God did. God said, if you considered my servant Job... And he allowed Satan to just completely devastate Job's life. Killed everybody, took away all his possessions except his wife. The second time after Job 2.2, he took away his health. And this brings us to an important principle. Satan, God, will let Satan touch his people. That doesn't sound very nice, does it? To let that happen. He allowed Satan to just devastate Job's life. Now what was Satan's desire? To devour. What was God's desire? God's desire, if you read the narrative, and I'm not going to take time to do it, God's desire was to show Satan that there are genuine believers who have faith in Him and will glorify Him no matter what. Job never knew what was going on in his lifetime. We know because of the book. It brings out an important principle. God may allow Satan to touch your life, but Satan can only do what God allows him to do and no more. And you may never know why God allows it. But what do we know about Job? Did God bless him? He did. What have we learned in Peter? When you undergo persecution and you're faithful through that persecution, what do we receive? We, we get glorified. The Bible says you get an abundance of glory in heaven. You get rewards in heaven and you see it through. The, the rewards don't come here most of the time. They come up there. But sometimes sickness, and, and it's not ours to parse, sometimes sickness can be brought on because God allows somebody in the spiritual realm to do it. We see this, by the way, in, in the Gospels. How many times was there somebody lame, somebody bent over, 
somebody sick, and the Bible says he cast the demon out. Jesus cast the demon out, and they were better. What about Paul? Remember Paul? First Corinthians is it chapter is it Second Corinthians? Uh, anyway, nine somewhere along in there, he said he said because of the vision that God gave me to prevent me from becoming proud, a thorn in my flesh by Satan. And what was the purpose? God said, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And His strength will be made perfect in your weakness today, dear Christian. What you can handle. Do you guys mind going to one more example? I'm running out of time here. Go to Luke chapter number 22. And verse number, roughly about verse number 31. I want to show you another time. Now remember what I said. In these times when God allows Satan to touch somebody, Satan is trying to devour, but God is trying to bring something good out of it. Okay, you got it. You have to remember that. Here we find it again, Luke 20. This is a stunning passage to me. Verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now what's going on? They're at the Last Supper. They're in the upper room. And, and Jesus is giving last instructions and he looks at Simon. And he says, Satan, now he, Jesus can see the spiritual realm. And he said, Satan demanded to have you, to sift you like wheat. Basically, the Lord let Satan have Peter. And he didn't fare as well as Job. It's astounding that God lets Satan tempt Peter. And again, Satan can't do anything to his saints without God's permission, but, but, um, God, Satan got Peter to deny Jesus not once, not twice, but three times he denied Jesus, didn't he? He allowed that to happen. But then look at what Jesus said. This is beautiful. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Jesus was praying for Peter. You might be sitting here today saying, oh man, I wish Jesus would pray for me. And guess what? The Bible it says He's interceding for you. Isn't that awesome? I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I have prayed for you, Peter, Here's my purpose in allowing the struggle. Look at what he says. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You have, when you have turned again, when you've come back around from your denial of me, Peter, you will be a strength to your brothers. Why? Because you'll have to go through, they will have to go through a struggle with Satan and you'll be able to show them how to have the victory. And so God let Satan go after Peter and put Peter in terribly compromising situation, shattered Peter's spiritual commitment to the point where he vocally denied Jesus Christ on three occasions. God let all that happen from Satan in order that Peter might come out stronger so that he could strengthen other people so that he could be the rock. You are the rock. Your confession of me is the rock on which the church is founded. And Peter came out of that and Peter became a bold, bold preacher and never backed down and never denied Jesus Christ again. And so sometimes God allows that to happen to strengthen us in difficult times so that we can strengthen others. I'm going to have to quit. 
Sometimes God allows the devil to, to um, touch his saints. I still have another uh, page and a half of sermon notes here, but I'm going to wrap this up and just say this. There, there's a dimension of spiritual warfare that goes on. We're not to focus on Satan because he's under God's control. But we're also not to deny his existence and act like he's some little cartoon that can be ignored. What are we to do? We are to, first of all, be watching for how he's going to get us. Number two, understand his character. And number three, we are to resist him. And I'll talk about it next week. I'm going to finish up next week, uh, First Peter. But that resistance is you're claiming the promises of God. You're looking at the glory that comes. He talks about it right in this passage. The glory that is to come. Folks, I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know how, how your life, what spiritual battles you're going through. I don't know what physical battles you're going through. I'm not going to try to tell you that Satan's attacking you if you're sick right now or anything else like that. But I will say this, it, it's possible. But whatever's going on in your life, remember that God is with you. And you are, you are dead meat if it's only you and Satan. But you completely come through it stronger if it's you and God. And it is you and God, isn't it? Well, I hope this encourages you a little bit and hopes, I hope that it helps you as, um, as you go through your week. Be watching. Even this afternoon, Satan's going to try to slip one in on you. Temptation. He might send a neighbor to mock you. He might get a, a, something with your job. I don't know. Just be watchful. Lord, there's so much more that we could say about spiritual warfare. Because it's very real. Satan uses uh, our our gates to our our um, desires, whether it's lust of flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Satan tempts us that way, but Satan also uses governments. He also uses um, persecution, and apparently, he can also use health issues. Lord, may we remain faithful. May we glorify you. The Lamb that was slain is worthy of all of our glory and praise. And one day, we'll see with clear with spiritual eyes that are unclouded what You have done to sustain us, our meager faith in this life on earth. May we look forward to the glory that is to come in Christ's name. Amen.